Uh, Today's reading is from Jonah 1. Jonah flees from the Lord. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you speak to us by your word reliably, not just occasionally, but reliably. So please, this morning, Lord, would you open our ears to hear and our eyes to see the riches that are in Jonah chapter 1. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this week I want to start by playing a little game with you. Um, It's a game called Would You Rather. Has anybody heard of that? You've played that before? If you've ever been to a children's camp, you've played that. If you've uh, maybe had uh, teenage children, you've played it. It's, it, it's um, for those who don't know, it's a game that forces you to choose between two usually equally horrible options. You have to choose one option or the other. It's often an icebreaker for a group of people. We haven't seen each other for a long time. Let's have an icebreaker. So would you rather fight uh, one horse-sized duck or 100 duck-sized horses? One horse-sized duck? 
100 duck-sized horses. Okay, looks like a horse-sized duck is the one. Um, next, uh, would you rather have hair grow all over your face that you couldn't shave off or inside your mouth? Um, <laughs> uh, it, all over your face? Inside your mouth. Okay. Um, <laughs> would you rather have hiccups for the rest of your life or constantly feel like you have to sneeze? Hiccups for the rest of your life? Constantly have to sneeze. You monsters. How could you? How could you deal with that? The, the, the feeling of having to sneeze is the worst one. Um, lastly, would you rather have your Christian faith assessed by a doctrine test or a lifestyle test? Doctrine test or lifestyle test? I won't take a vote on that one. But I guess probably most of us wouldn't want to be tested on either. We don't want our faith to, to be tested uh, by how much we know or by how well we live it out, do we? But if we had to pick one, which one would it be for you? Now, now, some of us would probably say doctrine. You know, we know our Bibles pretty well. We know what it teaches. We can get the right answers, or at least we know where to go to get the right answers. But Jesus tended to give people a lifestyle test, didn't he? He, he certainly taught that the truth really mattered. He cared about knowing the truth and people knowing the truth. So it wasn't that that, that didn't matter, but... When assessing what somebody really believes, he would say, look at the fruit. Look at the fruit. What do they actually do? Well, that tells you a lot about what somebody actually believes, doesn't it? Well, Jonah 1 is something of a lifestyle test on the topic of evangelism. Just about any Christian is going to pass the doctrine test on evangelism, aren't they? They're, should you share your faith? Yes. We know we should. And we can quote the verses, can't we? Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Let your light shine among men. Put your, let your light shine and don't put it under a bushel. Those sorts of things, right? We know the verses. We can pass the doctrine test. But when it comes to a lifestyle test, how would we do? How are we going to do? How well are you doing in actually sharing the Christian faith with other people? Well, Jonah would have passed the doctrine test. He would have passed it with flying colors. He knew the Lord. After all, he was a prophet. That's what we see in 2 Kings chapter 14. It, in verse 25, that's the only other reference outside the book of Jonah to Jonah the prophet. And it says that Jeroboam II, who was the king of the, the northern kingdom of Israel, was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Libo Hamath to the Dead Sea in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. Now Jonah had truthfully spoken the word of the Lord. He had, he had declared that the boundaries of the kingdom were going to be expanded finally after some contracting, and it was a time of restoration. That must have been a glorious moment for, for Jonah. 
Granted, he was a, a, a prophet from the dodgy northern kingdom. They were the, the less faithful ones, but, and that might have made him a bit suspect, but he was a true prophet. Yet in the book of Jonah, when he's told to take the word of the Lord outside the people of God to uh, a nation other than Israel, where we see that his faith badly failed the lifestyle test. And the first thing to notice from this in verses 1 to 3 is that Jonah runs away from God. Now, Jonah, he was a prophet. Just as we would expect, the book opens with this formula that you find all throughout the Bible when prophets receive a word from the Lord. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. But whereas most prophets in the Old Testament were called to proclaim God's message to God's people, Jonah was given this special message to go out, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, we're going to talk about Nineveh in future weeks a little bit more, but what you need to know for the moment is that it is the capital city of the big bad Assyrian Empire. They're the the worst. The Assyrians had a reputation for brutality. This is a, a... relief that you can find. One of, uh, I think this one's in the the British Museum. You can go to the British Museum and see all sorts of uh, carvings and artifacts from the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians had a reputation for brutality. You can see that in that carving. They had conquered the known region through a combination of actual fighting and psychological warfare. So you were too terrified to actually want to fight against these guys. And uh, their artwork, which is in the, the British Museum, it details all their favorite activities. Murder, slavery, and um, recreational lion hunts, strangely enough. That was what they did in their free time, what the kings did. They killed lions for sport in a stadium or or something. So, in short, Nineveh was the belly of the beast, the beating heart of Israel's most fearsome enemy, and Jonah was given the task of going to that city and preaching a message to them, uh, preaching against it because the wickedness of the city had reached to the heavens. The the Hebrew word ra'ah, That's what's translated as wickedness here. It can mean evil, moral evil. It can also mean calamity or disaster. So the Lord might be saying that Nineveh is a morally evil place. Go and preach against them. Or he might be saying Nineveh is in a disastrous, calamitous way right now. Go and preach against them. There's a kind of ambiguity in the the text here. But of course... Those things usually go together, don't they? Moral evil, calamity, disaster. When people and societies act in morally evil ways, it usually leads to disaster. It's why violent totalitarian regimes are relatively short-lived in history. It's why societies where immorality is celebrated inevitably decline and race toward their own destruction. This is a a, a painting of the decadence of Rome, well known. 
It's why secret sin spreads and damages whole lives, whole families, whole communities. Evil and disaster, they go together. And so you can see why Jonah might have resisted the call to the evil and calamitous city of Nineveh. In fact, many of the prophets of the Old Testament were resistant to God's call, weren't they? Moses, he says, no, can't somebody else speak? Elijah doesn't want to go. Jeremiah, Isaiah, all of them. Their their first question was always, can't you send somebody else, please? I'm not up for this. And yet, after a bit of encouragement, they stop arguing, they go. But Jonah has the, the shame of being the only prophet who tries to pull a runner on God. Right? Verse 3, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, and he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now, the book of Jonah, it's a simple story with some fantastically memorable aspects. Everything in the story is great. You have a a great city, a great wind, a great storm, a great fish. Everything is great. It's big. It's larger than life in the story of Jonah. And it's told in this this way to to exercise our imaginations and to get us um, involved in the story to capture our attention. And that's why it's usually one of the, the first stories that we teach to children because it's got all that big, bold imagery. But actually, when you come to the literary style of the book, um, it's quite intricate, quite uh, deliberate in the way it's told. Usually, I I think you can say as a general rule in, in the Bible, the shorter the book is, the more deliberately crafted it is, and the more it will reward deep study. And Jonah is like that. Every part of this verse tells us that Jonah does everything in his power to do the opposite of what the Lord commands. So first, Jonah was told to go up to the great city of Nineveh in verse 2, but instead, Jonah repeatedly goes down, down, down. He goes down to Joppa, down onto the boat, down into the stern of the boat, into a deep sleep, and, and then the sailors eventually throw him over, down into the depths of the earth, of the sea. The Lord says, go up. Jonah says, I'll go down. And so I thought maybe we could play a game of Jonah says. Okay, so you have to do the opposite of whatever Jonah says. So Jonah says, stand up. Jonah says, sit down. Jonah says, jump on your right foot. If anybody jumped on their right foot, you need to sit down, you're out, you're done for. Jonah says, uh, lift your left hand. Lift your right hand. Jonah didn't say put down your right. It's confusing when it's backwards, isn't it? It's hard to actually do backwards. Uh, Jonah says, sit down. Jonah says, stand up. Okay, that's all we'll play for Jonah says. But you get the point. In Jonah is going out of his way to do the opposite. Secondly, the Lord told Jonah, go to Nineveh. But Jonah goes to Tarshish, Tarshish, Tarshish. Three times in one verse. Now, Nineveh is in modern-day Mosul in Iraq. 
And that's about 550 miles inland, um, northeast of Joppa. And I think I have a, a slide to show that. But Tarshish, well, we're not exactly sure where Tarshish is. Uh, there are a few candidates, but it was certainly west because it needed to be sailed to. And one of the best guesses, I, I think, is in southern Spain. That's some 2,500 miles away from Joppa across the Mediterranean. That is quite literally, for the people of that day, the end of the earth. They don't know anything beyond that point. That's as far away as I can get. So Jonah is told to go up, and he goes down, down, down. He's told to go inland to Nineveh, and he goes out to Tarshish, Tarshish, Tarshish. He could not have gone further out of his way to disobey God's command to evangelize. And I wonder if there are ways that we do the same. I know I'm great at making excuses for why now is not really the time, what this situation, it's not really the appropriate context, why these people aren't the ones ready to hear. I'm pretty good at that. Are you? There's no rush. You know, there's always next week when we get together. Their distress means they're not ready to hear. I wouldn't want them to think I'm manipulating them. Um, their evil behavior means they won't accept it. They'll just mock me. And so we avoid living out what we know we should do according to our doctrine. We pretend we don't see the person as we walk by them on the street. Um, we are 2,500 mental miles away from the people around us in the office, on the MTR, and wherever else. It's really easy with a mask on and headphones on. I kind of like not being bothered, not being noticed, not being recognized out and about. We keep the conversations rather light instead of bringing up what actually takes up a great deal of our time and our attention in a given week. We never talk about what we've been learning from the Bible. We don't talk about what we've been praying about. We, we don't talk about what we've heard at church or the people that we uh, see there. Our social media output is basically just pictures of our food and uh, the fun that we have on the beach and our uh, strong political opinions, maybe, but not Jesus, not Christianity. We keep Jesus' conversation for Jesus' people, and we take great pains to leave the people of this great city in their ra'ah, in their distress, in their evil. And we know it isn't right. We know it's not right. But what we find in the book of Jonah is that we may be able to run from God, but we cannot hide from God. We, we, we cannot hide from him. He will accomplish his purpose through us, whether we want him to or not. And it can be very uncomfortable if we're not willing. So secondly, Jonah couldn't hide from God. In verses 4 to 16, we get this really dramatic story. Again, big, bold, colorful uh, imagery of what's going on. The Lord hurls this great wind down. Uh, the boat is about to break apart, and the sailors cry out in prayer. Jonah gets thrown overboard. But if we pay close attention to what's going on in the text, we find that the story has been 
carefully structured to show us the main point. The story forms a, a chiasm, or what is sometimes called a story sandwich. And that's how you can remember what a chiasm is. It's useful all over the Bible, um, but it's when um, there are mirrored things happening all along the way, and then the main, the central point, the most important point, is in the middle of the story. Like a, a multi-layer sandwich where you have the bread on the outside, the lettuce, the cheese, but the meat is on in the middle. And that's what's going on in verses 4 to 16. It's one of the, the biblical author's favorite ways to tell a story. So keep that tool in mind. And here, I think it's quite small. You can't really uh, read it in detail, but the, you can see that there are parallel things happening in the story at the end and at the beginning and as you go in until you get to the middle. So the Lord hurls a storm and the sailors fear in verses 4 and 5. And then in verses 15 and 16, the sailors hurl Jonah into the sea and they fear. In verse 5, they cry out to their gods, but in verse 14, they cry out to the Lord. The sailors command Jonah to do something to save the ship in verse 6. And then in verse 12, Jonah tells them how to save the ship. They look for the reason for the storm in verse 8, and they understand the reason for the storm in verse 10. You can see those mirrored layers, and the question is, what causes all these changes in the story to take place? Well, the answer is in verses 9 and 10. We discover the hinge on which the whole story swings. He answered, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? You see, Jonah was absolutely doctrinally right in this. He was a Hebrew. He was one of God's chosen people who worshipped God. Um, he worshipped God using the covenant name of God, the name that God had given to Moses. Yahweh, which is the Lord. He knew that the Lord was the God over the whole heaven and not just some particular people group or patch of land. He knew that God was the God over the sea and the dry land, the chaotic sea and the land where the, the people love to, to stay. Everything he says drips with knowledge of who God is, but there is something off about it. A more literal rendering of what he says is, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. But when it's read that way, what he's saying becomes laughable, doesn't it? Jonah doesn't fear the Lord, does he? He doesn't fear the Lord. Every single detail of his story, uh, of his, the way he's living, says he doesn't fear the Lord at all. He rejects, he resists, he flees from the Lord, but he doesn't fear the Lord. He thinks he can escape the God of heaven by going to a faraway city. He thinks he can resist the mission inland by going out onto the sea. Not even the storm rouses fear in him. The sailors beg him to pray. They recognize it as divine judgment. But Jonah says, no, I'd rather die than pray to God. Throw me overboard before I pray. Jonah knows the God he should fear, and he knows why he should fear him. And when given the choice, he says, I will fear God over my dead body, literally. Right? And you know, I think that is meant to be surprising. 
that the only person in the story that should know better stubbornly rebels and um, persists in his rebellion. And maybe you find it surprising, or maybe um, that's what we're supposed to think, but I think when we think about it a little more personally, maybe it shouldn't be that surprising. Because I think that we see the same thing all the time in lives of Christian people, don't we? And if we're honest, we see it in our own lives. Those who know Jesus, those who know why he should be worshipped, they're the ones who most blatantly refuse to obey him in all sorts of ways. There's so many of us who say, I'm a Christian, I fear the Lord, but our lives show persistent disobedience to the Lord. Some might say, I fear the Lord who established the church, but I don't go to church. I fear the Lord who's lovingly committed to his people, but I sleep with my boyfriend, whoever my boyfriend is at the moment. I worship the Lord who provides for my every need, but I don't give my money to the things he says are important. I fear the Lord who makes himself known, but I spend more time scrolling nonsense rather than hearing from him. I fear the Lord who loves his enemies, but I harbor bitterness in my heart. I fear the Lord who gave his own life to save, but I can't risk my discomfort to speak of him, to save people. Friends, what kind of fear is that? Too often, our way of life as believers makes the doctrine we say we believe into a laughingstock. And Jonah exposes that. But, but the pagan sailors, they couldn't be more different. They are meant to come across as a rebuke both to Jonah and to believing readers of the book because they know nothing about the Lord, their doctrine is completely wrong, they're praying and worshiping false gods at the beginning of the story, but at every step they do exactly the right thing as soon as they hear the truth. So they perceive the storm as divine judgment and they fear. That's what God wanted to have happen. But the moment that Jonah tells them uh, about the Lord, they were terrified. More literally, they feared a great fear. And they cried out in horror at Jonah's foolish hypocrisy. What have you done? What have you done? How could you? Jonah, you say you believe in the God of heaven, but you tried to escape him to Tarshish. Jonah, you say he's the God of the sea? We're on the sea. What are you doing? What have you done? And that moment changes everything for them. You see? Suddenly they, they feared the Lord more than they feared the storm. They wanted to survive, but not at the expense of the Lord's anger. So they pray for their guilt to be taken from them before they throw Jonah overboard. And when they hurl him overboard and the sea is calmed, then we're told that they feared a great fear again. They feared a great fear of the Lord. And made sacri they sacrificed a sacrifice to the Lord, and they vowed vows to him. 
those, that duplication, that's another sort of Hebrew way of emphasizing, of saying it was really earnest, sincere, genuine. In a word, converted. The pagan sailors were converted. And that is what knowing the truth about God should do. Their doctrine and their lifestyle matched. Well, it's a, a rebuke to Jonah and a foreshadowing of what's going to come in the rest of this book, but I think it's also an encouragement to reluctant evangelists like us. How so? Because we can sometimes look at our lives and we can think, who am I to speak to people about God? I keep falling into sin. I keep disobeying him. Me and my family were hardly models to be imitated. Even my non-Christian friends recognize hypocrisy in me. And if that's you, well, it's not good. It's time to cry out to the Lord and ask for his help before you're thrown overboard in life. Uh, so, so do that, but... Actually, Jonah 1 says, despite our many failures, sometimes just speaking the truth about God is enough. Just saying the truth. He's the God of heaven and earth. He's the God of the sea and the dry land. He's the, the God who enters into relationship with his people. He's the God who died to save. People may hear what we say and say to us, uh, see how our lives don't match up with it, and they might say to us, what have you done? But they can still be converted because the message of who God is is what saves people. It's not your sterling life. So get the life straight, get the doctrine and lifestyle aligned and, and unified, but don't wait till that point to start sharing the gospel, because it's not your life that saves, it's Jesus' life. We just have to make it known. And maybe the fact that our Lord would not only allow himself to be thrown headlong into the sea, but to be thrown headlong into death in order to save obviously sinful people like you and like me. Maybe that would be enough to convert a pagan world. Maybe that would be enough to make people tremble and fall before him in worship. Let's pray. Father, our doctrine and our lifestyle so often doesn't match up. And Lord, if by your Spirit you are pressing that home in particular ways for any here, I pray that you would uh, convict them and convert them. Please help us to change, to bring our lives into alignment with what we believe. So Lord, please help us to share the, the message of who you are, of how great your salvation is how merciful you're willing to be with the world around us. 
please convict us and convince us and send us out in the power of your spirit to do it. We pray all these things in Jesus' name and for the sake of his name. Amen.